0: Just kidding. That was "Waiting" by Sean Quinn, who is my guest for this episode. Thanks for tuning in to find out if this is music, but if you're in a rush, it is. It is music. Our second season continues after a sprinkling of bonus episodes. Do you like those? Made them for you, so check them out if you haven't already. There's a there's an uh, an album drop. by Liam Moore, local Twin Cities songwriter, composer, cool guy, uh, and a uh, little live sesh with with Phonema Consort. That was fun. They were in here in town doing a gig, doing a show. Got to chat. Uh, I've got a few more conversations in the pipeline. Just waiting for Mr. Fresh Pots. Okay, Tony, to give him a polish. Polish? Polish? I don't know if he's Polish. I'm Polish. I don't know if he's Polish, though. It looks a little bit Czech. Could be some could be some Czech there. Or Dutch. I saw him wearing a Holland sweatshirt once, so it could be Dutch. Or he just went vacation to Holland. I don't know. But Tony worked hard on this episode as well. This is the second one to have some audio issues, so sorry about that. But no one runs this. I just have to make do when something goes wrong. But now, Tony can help out afterwards, and I am learning. So, thanks, Tony. Um, uh, Man alive. Man, who says that anymore? Man alive. Yeah, that's what I should be. I've had a hard time answering when people uh, ask me, like, how's it going? You know? Like, not in, like, a super dark way. Just, 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 I don't know. How many times can you be, like, good? Getting tired of being, like, good, good. Everything's good. What's new? Everything. Nothing. You know? Everything's crumbling. We're good. So maybe a man alive will just be what I, man alive, and then just... Just, just leave? I don't know. I don't know. I just stumble until they make up another... Like I'm doing now, except usually there's somebody on the other side of me going, uh, changing the subject, getting out of this situation. Now it's just left to me. Where's Tony? Tony, I need you. Help me out of this pickle. Um. Anyways, if you like what you hear, you can subscribe, follow, whatever the vocabulary is, um, whatever you're listening on. Leave me a review, send me an email. Something. Yeah, the email's is this pod you know the email is, is this music pod at gmail.com. You can follow me on the insta. I can't believe it's not music. Like I can't believe it's not butter, but music. It is music though. It's a whole thing. I went back and forth. I decided what I decided. But do something to get the word out. That's this is worth listening to. I don't like a void. I mean, Kind of do, I guess. Like, avoiding things. That's always nice. But, uh, spread the word. Tell a friend. Let me know. I can thank you for it. That's about all. I'll thank you. My guest this episode is Australian-turned-temporary Berliner, Sean Quinn. Our conversation is full of rabbit holes, including a whole bunch we never actually go down, but uh, mention potentially getting done. In fact, we're pretty sure that we'll get to everything later, but we never do. The intention is there though. Now, where we did go is plenty interesting though and and bubbles with an unrest felt most acutely by someone older than their age, and Sean definitely is older than his age. When we first talk, I thought they were like 36 or something, but it turns out they're in their 20s. Was that a problem? No. Did it strike me as odd the first time they said the sins of my youth? Yeah, a bit. But Sean seems to be eclectic as shit. He handwrites scores, already sees his output in terms of periods, and thinks we should all just zip it between movements. So I guess what I'm saying is that Sean is an old soul, and if they think that there's already an obligation to rewrite the days of yore, then we should just hold that door open for him. Contribute to the economy, you old fart. That'll make sense after the episode. In short, uh, I like Sean. He's just as bitter as a musician 10 years older than him, but with more energy and, I assume, better joint health. He's got interesting ideas, too, so enjoy our chat. So you hear the thing uh hello everybody welcome to the next episode of is this music um and that is the correct pronunciation of it of that's the correct inflection of question mark exclamation mark question mark exclamation mark i think uh so i have i have sean quinn here a s- self-described freeloading artist who based in berlin as of very recently um I'll explain that joke in a second but uh um, welcome, welcome to the to the podcast uh, Sean.
1: Hi, Justin, thanks for having me. Um, it's great to be
0: here. Ah, I, um, yeah, it's it's nice the first time that that we talked so, so yeah, so you just moved to Berlin a couple months ago from Australia. first time we talked, you were accommodating the rest of the world's schedule by um, staying up till four in the morning to have meetings. Now this is, this is nice. It's what, 7.30 by you, 12.30 by me. You know, little slice of time zone heaven here. So much Uh, easier. I mean, that's why I moved
1: here. It's like the only reason, no. Um, (laughs) But uh, you know, uh, yeah, I actually only moved about two weeks ago, so um, it hasn't been that long. But um, I've been, yeah, I moved from Melbourne, the most locked down city in the world, previously the most uh, livable city in the world. I guess you could put the letters U and N in the front of that right now. But I'm um, <laughs> uh personal opinion, don't hate on me, Australian viewers. But um yeah, I'm based here now in Berlin, um, in Germany. And yeah, so things are colder than I expected. Uh but you know,
0: here we are. Here yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah. So uh so you're working on that that freelance visa you said, and that was the 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 language is you have to add to the economy um, oh yes
1: the german the german uh, government is very specific about uh your addition to the economy must be sustainable and you must have funds that can supply and you know i have money set aside to look after myself for a little while but like yeah. i'm sitting there going and you know this whole podcast is like a testament to what we we're, <laughs> we're going to be talking about is yeah. like what is an experimental composer going to add to the economy? I mean,
0: <laughs> seriously. Our, our cultural economy, you know. <laughs> our cultural
1: economy, you know, the the economy of the mind, perhaps. Yeah. Something along those lines. But, yes, um, I, as you dubbed me, um, I've been trying to somehow bring together my freelance visa to uh, sustain myself as not the freeloading artist that I truly will be here in <laughs> Berlin. But... Uh, who knows? Maybe I won't be freeloading for that long, but I probably will be.
0: Oh, you know, don't we all? Don't we all? That's 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 the dream of every artist, right? We just want, you know, give us some grants, give us a, uh, a sponsor. You know, we'll we'll do we'll keep every we'll keep patron. the world intact. A wealthy patron, <laughs> you know, and we'll keep the world intact. How about that? Um,
1: keep everyone
0: alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, totally get that. Um, well, anyway, I mean. You're in a good, I mean, Berlin has plenty of weird, you know, I mean, a history of, of weird in terms of arts and everything. So I th- I think I think you'll, uh, you'll find your niche pretty quickly there. Um,
1: oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. I've so definitely speak- found.
0: Already, already you have. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, well, not my niche, but I've found a number of niches that people have found. Um, there was a concert that I went to um, at a cabaret club that was, by, that was done by a new music ensemble from Estonia. And they came in and played all sorts of weird, it was like a concert to do with found objects and junk sounds. I think it was called mm-hmm. Scrapyard. And they played all sorts of things like um, toy fans with volume pedals and they had these things called automatones that are those weird like quaver things where you like sort of slide your finger up and down and open oh, yeah, yeah. and close
2: things
1: they had a whole like a whole 10 minute piece at the end of this concert with or just four of them playing automatones and while it was kind of like i think a lot of us were sitting there going okay that was nice <laughs> you know we sort of, we sort of did the the polite clap at the end but no it was it was a great experience to see that as my first gig here in Berlin, yeah. because it's like it completely shits all over what everyone else right. does. Like, like,
0: oh well, I can the- fit. I can fit somewhere in the spectrum before that, or yeah. after that. You know, <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, if this is what they're allowed to do here, then I should be fine. You know, yeah, I'm gonna be fine. <laughs> but We're um, gonna be good. Yeah, I'll be okay. Um, maybe. maybe, maybe I'll go in that terrain. You never know. <laughs> Berlin. Hey. What what happens in Berlin stays in Berlin. Uh, <laughs>
0: Apparently, very. I've often said that Berlin is the Vegas of Germany. So, um, oh
1: yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. Uh,
2: oh,
0: yeah. So, so speaking of niches, let's talk about let's talk about your niche. It's not no. Uh, let's talk about your musical niche. Um, let's yeah. So so obviously we talk about complexity. We talk about experimentalism, experimental uh, mm. practices, and everything. So um, where do you kind of where where do you see yourself? Fit into
1: that. Oh I've actually artist. written oh as an artist ooh. as an artist or person it's I don't know a, It's such a broad oh as a person too that's even broader. Um, no um, complexity and experimentalism are a bit I wouldn't say problematic but they're kind of things that I they're kind of walls that I've always tried to bash my head against. Mm -hmm. As an artist, um, I came across those terms when I was a lot younger um, and I was like, "Oh, you know, I'll grab hold of those and I'll see where that takes me. And it always turned into me having a conversation with one of my colleagues and they'd be like, oh, so you write experimental music, right, okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they'd say, oh, I write music inspired by video games and film music. And I'd be like, oh, wow, that's really cool. That's amazing. And then they'd say, oh, so what do you do? Oh, I write graphic scores and weird shit. And they're like, oh, (laughs) okay, Right. (laughs) Jesus, like slowly edged away from me. But um, as an artist, I tend to focus a lot on a sort of a very physical and human sound and human natural quality of music. Uh, I began composing around about 15 and have traversed a lot of ground. Um, And I don't say that in any sort of immodest sense of a lot Mm -hmm. of ground. There's just been a lot of changes that have happened in the very short time that I've been composing. Um, I mean, I'm 21 and um, I'm living in Berlin, if that's any testament to how naive and ambitious I am. But um, uh, I have sort of gravitated always towards the more uncanny, irregular sounds, distorted, sort of uh, dissonant sounds, I guess you could say. But um, Mm. I, I think the other word I'm trying to remember what the word is that I was using to think about this this afternoon because I knew I knew a question like this would come up about yeah. what is your aesthetic and it's both the best question and worst question to ask a composer and to Enough. answer as a composer because we're, we're always going to have a million ways of approaching what we do mm. right? and and and. I mean, I think a lot about time, as every composer does. You ask any composer and they'll talk to you, you'll talk your ear off about what time means and whether it actually means anything in relation to anything. And um, I think of time as being quite a flexible thing in my music. Um, Another thing that I think about quite a lot is fluidity in sound. Mm. The idea Mm. of sounds blurring into one another and creating... um, sort of a fluid pattern of instrumental voices a lot in chamber music Um, I've been exploring that a lot more recently in some of the music that I've been writing trying to get around the worlds of uh, more sort of filigrane types of uh, activity without it seeming like we brought you brought up that word complexity and I, I that's a really interesting term to me because people often associate that with people like Brian Ferneyhough and Richard Barrett and Chris Dench and that sort of school of new complexity, that sort of mm-hmm. scary world of nested tuplets and hemi demi-semiquavers, or um, I think they're called sixty-fourth notes in America. Yeah. Um, I know, but like hemi
0: demi-semiquaver is the is, is the supreme way to talk about it. I guess. Oh yes. Oh so yes. It's, it's
1: it's it's yeah. Just add and the, and, the you know, the way the rule works with that, um, if you don't know, um, you add demi and hemi every time it gets, like, as you add tuplet beamings. So you have a demi-semi-quaver is three, a semi-quaver mm. is two, demi-semi is three, hemi-demi-semi is four, demi-hemi-demi semi is five and then you just keep adding hemi demi hemi demi hemi demi it's it's like forte and piano you have forte fortissimo fortissimo fortissimo
0: fortissimo like, some like theorists just like sitting around be like this would be fucking <laughs> funny like just <laughs> it's like are we gonna do we're gonna print this yeah 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 we're gonna repeat it and we'll see if it see if it sticks <laughs> i
1: mean i mean it it, it kind of, it kind of works but I don't think anyone's ever going to get to the stage where they're using more than just like, if you get to the stage where it's like too many lines, you're just like that note, the fast one. That uh, note,
0: the fast one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. But so that sounds complex. So going back a- into complexity then. So that's kind of a loaded, loaded thing for you.
1: Uh, yeah. It is a bit of a loaded thing. Cause earlier when I was starting to explore that type of, sort of tuplet work and um, the experimental side of sound, I was looking into um, Brian Ferney music quite a lot because um, it's kind of it's kind of a gateway drug for a lot of people who go into that world is that you look at Ferney Ho's music and you sort of see, okay, so that's the threshold that I can reach. That's kind of like the water gate. And then I can just only row backwards from here. And I, I think I realized pretty early on, it was actually probably the middle of last year that I started to realise, oh, actually, no, maybe it was even earlier. Because I, I did try out the new complexity thing for a while. Yeah. The, um, Brian Fonyho has this sort of permutative system that he uses and it's exhausting and, I don't know, I mean, uh, only Brian Fonyho should use it as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> only Brian Fonyho. But um, complexity to me started to speak to, people started to associate my music with that and I always looked at that as being like, well, do I really have the same ideas as them? Hmm. Perhaps, yes. I think in some ways there are elements of complexity to my music and tuplets and all sorts of things like people often look at my scores and go oh my god there's a nested tuplet and I go but it's just a triplet inside of a triplet it's not that terrifying it's okay we'll get through this but also I I think that complexity can be a thing that can alienate people sometimes. And I think also the term experimental can sometimes be a thing. I have actually written, there actually is an article out there that I wrote when I was more sort of outspoken and naive as a young child um, about two years ago. So, you know, such our
0: youth. But um, It just changes so quickly. <laughs> oh, yes,
1: life changes so quickly. But um, I wrote a thing saying how much I hated the term experimental. But I, I, th- I still think it can be a little bit alienating for people because they think, oh, it's unfound, it's unknown. Yeah. What am I going to do with this? How am I going to approach this? And maybe it's a problem with society. Maybe it's a problem with the composers. Maybe it's a problem with everyone. Who knows? But to me, I would say my music... Lies sort of on the brink of being around timbre and explores complexity in a way that like I keep coming back to that word fluidity at the moment because it is the thing that I'm looking for the the thing of a concurrent sort of line even in silence there is a progression or a direction a purpose in the music and the more I've sort of grown as a composer the slower I compose, um, which I've noticed, and I don't like it. I hate it. I hate composing slowly because it um, it feels almost unnatural with the way my sort of brain is constantly going a million miles an hour, like the hamster getting on the wheel and <laughs> round and round and round. I think I might have mentioned that last time, the hamster being on the wheel.
2: Oh yeah, um, yeah. The last yeah.
1: time we talked, yeah. Um, and then, like the hamster just kind of falls off the wheel, and the wheel just keeps spinning, and then spins off out of control. It's like a tire on fire going down the hill, which is gone. But um, so yeah,
0: those are my thoughts on my aesthetic. <laughs> on your aesthetic. So you're a hamster in a burning wheel of complexity and spaciousness. Um, the word when you were when you were talking about uh, dissonance, you know, and then you kind of the, the word that kind of popped in my head. Um, about, about your work is is discordant and may, maybe you know um I don't know like the dictionary definition of it but to me like it it, it has a little bit more to do with like the clash and re, you know and release than like that that like you know sustained I think for me like distance is like that's is, is the sustained kind of stretch of it and the discord the you know discordance is like the um the impact of it um, yeah, and that's actually yeah. an
1: interesting way of putting it. Um, another word that I tend to use a lot is divergence and convergence. Well, they're two mm, words. Yeah. But um, the moments of sort of bring, coming together and and, for, and spreading apart is an interesting yeah. thing to me. Even within a single instrument, how can you make an instrument um, go from its natural state in, and diverge from that state completely and then bring yeah. it back or take a single sound from an instrument and string it out? In a million different ways, not necessarily in variations or anything as structured as that, but a more sort of lucid uh, unfurling of a mm-hmm. sound in some way. And
0: uh, well, let's 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 take a um, little listen to. I'm gonna pull up a old piece, um, and and then I don't know one of one of kind of found one of your pieces. Uh, we'll see if. I mean, not to compare to Frenio, <laughs> but, you know, like just to get the listeners like thinking, you know, of, of this difference of complexity, because I think you're absolutely right. Complexity is this loaded term that, that you know, I think is very embedded in this idea of new complexity school, you know, of composition, um, which it seems that most people that are defined as that actually really are, are shy. You know, they're like, ah, don't, you know, don't put me in that box, you know. Um, James Dillon comes up, up a lot on this podcast because I studied with him. A lot mm. of, you know, the you know, yes. 113, you know, uh, composers came out of his studio. And he's definitely, you know, a, a prime example of that. Where He's like, uh, you know, you can call me that, but that's, that's not what I call me, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, so it's an I, interesting I, thing.
1: I, I think he's definitely a case. I don't know his music that well, but the music that mm-hmm. I do know of him um I, I never really see it as new complexity. Like a, yeah. another one that I would parallel with the new complexity is someone like Chris Dent who is an Australian composer associated mm-hmm. with the new complexity. And he always he always sort of rejects that term. And I've never really seen his music is that there are sort of angular tuplets and layering of polyrhythms and all sorts of things, but there is also an element of, uh, lyricism that is found in it. And I think that's the case with James Dillon's music as well. There's sort of a, an attention to harmony and uh, timbre that goes beyond this sort of filigrane world or filigrous world, I should I should use that term properly, um, uh, that Brian Fanningho tends to inhabit uh, very yeah. jaunty, separated, jagged interactions that can... Yeah. again I come back to that thing of convergence and divergence that happens a lot in Fernie Ho and that's one thing that I do like about Fernie Ho's music. Um, A lot to love about Fernie Ho, a lot to not love as well
0: (laughs) All right, always the case. Well I'm going to pull up this uh, uh, string quartet, second string quartet, I actually got to see that with the Arditi Quartet um, a couple years ago I think it was like 2019 they were here in Minneapolis Um, and uh, it it was really cool so I'm going to pull this up quick just to give a little little taste. so there you got some obvious complexity there and and actually i mean that was uh um largely just still just the first violin (laughs) you know you only get the second violin coming in um so like yeah just just that like you know you're almost playing multiple instruments at once even in the same instrument um i get this feeling sometimes in the more complex vocal stuff i do where it's like you know obviously I, i can't like i mean i don't know how to do two pitches at once that wouldn't be amazing but you know where you're almost like swapping out you know your instrument a bit so um and geez i'll put it i'll put a link in the in the comments here or the whatever the description here because this video has the score and uh that's always fascinating um now a different type now yeah you have a different type of complexity it's all right i'd like to uh to kind of put something in there um and I'll, I'll edit this little bit out, but but what's kind of coming up for me right now is, is waiting. Um, yeah. Uh, that, that one might, uh, we go to an, an intermittent breath. Um, mm-hmm. what, would one of those yeah, be all right um, to share right now?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, maybe an intermittent breath would be better because waiting takes a while to sort of get going. So um, sure. an intermittent okay. breath could be good to sort I- of explore the more reserved world that I work in sometimes right. and we'll get into that maybe.
0: Yeah. 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 So, so this, uh, this piece that we're going to kind of you now of yours, Sean is, is a an intermittent breath. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of discuss it a little bit after, um, the clip, um, let's just see if I get an ad. Vastly
1: right. different worlds to fernie her. I mean, that's probably maybe it's not the best thing to compare it to, but I
0: disagree. Still... I disagree. Oh,
2: yeah. Okay. Yeah,
0: I disagree, I, and I, I think there's there's an element of watching and everything, but the uh, um, so that this is for this this is for accordion um, mm-hmm. uh, for anybody that wasn't wasn't picking that up, you know, but uh, for accordion, which right at the bat, awesome, cool decision. <laughs> um, <laughs> But the, the focus of the performer tells me, you know, I'm not seeing the score there, but the focus of the performer tells me that there is an intricacy um, to what's on the page, you know, um, and there's, there's a lot of kind of movements, I mean, kind of using the, the, the instrument almost as lungs, you know, and and kind of, so dictating the, the inhalation, exhalation of the, of the, of the accordion, um, which, I mean, that's complex, you know, to and that that requires that demands of the performer, in intimacy and uh, uh, um, command of the instrument. That uh, you know, it might be not be semi demi semi demi hemi demis, but uh, it is very intricate. I think.
1: Well, yeah, and and that score is not actually particularly well. It, it has its moments of being a little bit more complex, and it's more about the the sort of suspended silence that each of the sounds emerge from for me, which in the case of the Fennie Ho, actually, now that I think of it is actually quite a good example for the start of that second string quartet. There is that sort of element of the suspended silence
2: mm-hmm.
1: where you are left between these sort of little gestures that are sort of mobilic at the beginning and then they begin to grow longer and longer and longer. And if I, if I understand, I think that... Um, Brian often talks about these things as being quite damaged structures. Mm. There's sort of these uh, fragmentary qualities to each little gesture where, you know, you'll have a, a quintuplet but at the very end of it there'll be a, a rest or at the very start there'll be a rest. You know, yeah. why is it a quintuplet? Why not just write four notes? But The thing is that it's more the intent behind it. And a lot of this score for um, an intermittent breath has these sort of tuplets where the accordion begins at the end of the tuplet, surging out of a silence. Mm. And speaking to that, a lot of my music actually begins with a rest. It can begin with anything from a sort of a 16th rest right through to a, a very long sort of whole note rest where I allow the performer to imagine that the music is coming from somewhere else and that it's emerging from some place where and that the music begins, it's as though it's sort of coming from a long line of possible musics that's going on in my head and then what people believe and what people have to interpret is a fragment of that, a, a sort of potential um, survival. It's almost like this Darwinian idea of the survival of the fittest. Um, uh, what survives on the page is ultimately what people end up getting. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that can be a matter of what I was able to write in the time limit. Sometimes it's a matter of, you know, whether or not I was willing to add more music or subtract more music or whatever. And often my process, which we'll get into more, I'm sure, but it, it, which has changed a lot. But there are things that haven't changed and there are bad habits that need to change. But uh, I guess all composers have those. But in the case, this piece was actually quite, I wouldn't say a close collaboration. It was written quite quickly. It was written about oh, maybe one composing session. I sort of sat down and wrote all of the material. But I sat down with Gennady Rotari, who is the um, uh, accordionist. He asked me to write a piece as part of his Quarantine Diaries project. And I said, all right, so let's have a session on the accordion because I knew a little bit about the instrument, but I wasn't that familiar with it. And he really sort of opened my mind to the physicality of, you know, how we have the impression that the accordion is this sort of in-out idea. It's actually just mm-hmm. on one side, you know. It's mm. And the other hand controls the keyboard and the registration and the chin actually controls a lot of the registration too. So it's a very physical action. And um, you can't see it a lot, but uh, there are other pieces that Gennady plays by other composers that are very sort of physically demanding. And um, an example of that would be another composer that I'm sure we'll talk about at some stage uh, that is a great influence of mine. Um, More recent influence, but a great influence nonetheless. Um, She actually lives here in Berlin, Rebecca Saunders, British composer. And um, she wrote a piece called Flesh. For solo accordion that also uses a lot of vocalization, but it's actually the score is very um uh physically driven. And uh I believe there actually is a performance out there of Gennardi doing it. And when he um when you watch it, it's sort of this extraordinary movement constantly. The chin is bashing up and down on top of the um instrument and there's no sort of real trajectory or melody or anything like that. There are notes. It's just that sometimes it turns into this sort of weird graphicized, uh gestural notation of clusters. Mm-hmm. And uh, it brings out this sort of ireful quality and um, almost a Something raging and rampant and almost erotic about the way that she approaches the instrument because it's um, the text is uh, sort of a quite a lewd excerpt from the end of James Joyce's Ulysses, uh, from the Molly Bloom monologue. I'm not sure if you're familiar with James Joyce's work, oh, but yeah, um,
2: yeah.
1: yeah, but that there's a, a sort of a big slab that she divides into sixteen, um, sort of close to. Um, uh, equal sections, and the accordionist has to sort of suck them, inhale them, and exhale them, and it's quite a wild experience um, experiencing this work. But nonetheless, very entertaining.
0: Nice. So, let's, you know, I mean, there's there's, there's going to be so many threads, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and everything to follow. But but I want to I, I want to uh, it's all right though. I, I'd like to. <laughs> talk about your age a little bit actually because this this is um I was very when I so you know I I I kind of explained when when I uh, when we first first got got in touch with each other like I I just I stumped across your stuff on that Facebook group basically I think um it was and you know um you know I'm not not a super big social media person but like I, I I like to scroll through those forums every now and then and just see like what music comes up, you know, it's kind of a nice, nice way to see who's uh, trying to build connections and community and has stuff to put out there and everything. And, uh, and yeah, and you kind of um, popped up and, and kind of made an imprint on me, you know, on me a bit. So, so, you know, reached out and everything. And, um, and I was, I was very surprised because I I, I went and I say, you know, search for you and everything I was like oh well there's there's quite a bit of stuff out there and everything um I was very surprised that you know you've been at this for three years you know so maybe it's not so much talking about your age I mean whatever you know like but uh but just that is pretty fascinating to me um I think pretty prolific with what you put out there and none of nothing that I've come across there's probably stuff out there there always is nothing that I've come across feels like it was rushed it all feels very thought out mapped out um, I've seen you kind of post updates and stuff on like kind of you're you are a mapper it seems like um, you know so I was wondering if we could just talk about that that process a bit like where
1: yeah.
0: where, where where did you kind of Come into yeah, mapping stuff out, and how do you keep the you know so many projects separate? I guess and organized. Maybe they're not. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, yeah. That's
1: a that's an interesting question. Are they separate? Um, that's something that I've started to ponder a lot myself mm. about the um, the whole thing of um, exploring the idea of sort of an accumulative uh, catalog and how that. Matters to me as a composer, and whether or not it does matter. And the idea that I always come back to is legacy. Um, mm-hmm. Not that I'm thinking about when I'm going to be dead, um, but you know, just oh, thinking yeah. about. Well, I think we're, we've all thought about death once in our lives. It, well, I say our lives—the last two years, maybe. But um, you know, Do- <laughs> but um, I think a lot about legacy in regards to what what is it that my work is. What am I going to be remembered for? And what is my work going to do? And in the past three years, I mean, my process has changed vastly during the pandemic. And I think that especially came in from the fact that I didn't have access to people constantly. Mm. Um, not that I was ever a particularly collaborative composer per se, like I don't sit down with performers and really sort of figure it out with them or anything like that. I'll take sort of, I'll have a session with the performer, I'll get sort of information that I need, I'll go away, write a bit come back, we'll sort of work on it, see what it says, and then, you know, I'll go away, elaborate it or completely reset it or, you know, and, and often my work sometimes um, goes through many, many permutations. Uh, there are different versions. For example, there was a work that I wrote um, uh, in 2020 for clarinetist Richard Haynes called Incubation, um, which was recorded on his CD, Ghosts of Motion. Um, which is for clarinet de d'amour, uh, which is a uh, revitalised or I think it, I would say a modernised version of an ancient historical instrument from the 18th century or maybe early 19th century that sort of died out after a while. But it's sort of a, it's got the, it's like a clarinet that's an octave lower than the alto flute effectively, but then has this huge sort of altissimo range like the clarinet does. Um, and. Cool has quite a sort of uh, reversed, reserved voice, Uh, very, I think Richard calls it um, introverted, which I would definitely describe. And when I was approaching the work originally, um, uh, one of the things that I was really looking into was these sort of dyadic multiphonics, very close proximity multiphonics, which is something that the clarinet does really well. It's really hard, but it does it really well and um this clarinet um, has the capabilities of producing both clarinet multiphonics and bass clarinet multiphonics because with the modernization of the instrument um it added the extension the basset extension that every modern basic uh, modern bass clarinet has with a low C. so effectively it's like just a, a big long clarinet with yeah. um, that's and has a very narrow bore, though, which adds to that sort of introverted nature and is historically relevant to how the instrument would have been built. But coming back to how my process works in relation to this permutative process, I mean, the number of times, the number of versions of the opening, just the opening of the piece that I sent to Richard for him to try out and see whether or not it worked or not. uh, and I loved the back and forth where he, I would send him a list of multiphonics and he would go, okay, so this one works. That one doesn't work at all. That one kind of works if you add flutter tongue." And it was a fantastic sort of collaborative back and forth. <laughs> and um, in that case, I would say that was a more collaborative composition that I've worked on for quite a while. Um, but as the piece evolved, I started to, the way that I had originally planned it out in my head, And it's interesting that you say that my music is planned out because often it isn't. And I don't mean that to sound like arrogant where I go, oh, it just happens. It does then. It doesn't just happen. But rather than it being planned per se, you know, where I sit down and sort of map it out, there are situations where I do map music out quite specifically. And sometimes you'll see me posting on social media various mappings Mm. and all of that. But it is often that those things will be discarded. They're more just me sort of getting out on a page saying, all right, What's the what's the general field going to look like? What am I mm-hmm. dealing with here? What's the material going to be? How am I going to approach this piece? And what's this piece going to sound like? Because I, I don't know, it, it could sound like anything. And if I put something on the page, and often it, it doesn't come in the form necessarily of a visual or notes or anything like that. It can even come in words. I love writing text, um, and I'm sure we'll talk more about um, mm-hmm. uh, text and opera and all sorts of things later. Um, because, you know, I have a lot to say about that. Yep. And, um, <laughs> but uh, I often like writing sort of almost these programmed texts about my music to describe what the music is going to be. Yep. I'm almost treating myself like an audience member in that way, and this is where my relationship, and I'll, I'll trace that back to Fernie home in a second. I do digress a lot. I, I promise I will get to the point. But <laughs> we're here the for way it. That, that's a- I'm glad. I'm glad we're here for it
0: because <laughs> sometimes... It's going to happen whether we are or not.
1: <laughs> it's um, going to
0: happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Fernie um, coming back. Yeah.
1: But coming back to what I mean by this idea of putting words to it and the perspective of the audience and the person is that Fernie Ho writes a lot with dimensions. You talked a lot about this idea of sort of as a singer, you have to, when you're write, um, writing... When you're singing more complex or um, avant-garde obscure sort of jaunty music you are having to jump in and out of lots of different aspects of your voice you know very loud bellicose sort of singing um, and then sort of jaunty short staccato type singing and things like that just as you know examples out there in the ether um, but with Fernie Ho, I find that there is a dimensional quality that is so, it's almost like four-dimensional writing in some way. So There's a, an aspect that you get the foreground and surging in and out of these dimensions, there's a very physical aspect to it, which was something that immediately attracted me to his music. I think the first piece that I actually experienced of his was um, his piano piece, Lemma Icon Epigram, uh, which is like this 28-minute marathon Of a piece, but it's only 13 pages, but it's huge. And I printed off a copy of the score and took it to one of my piano lessons. And my piano teacher just looked at me and was like, No way, no way, I'm not teaching that to you. And not out of like discouraging me against contemporary music. He was one of the biggest advocates in my life to encouraging me to go down that path of contemporary music and exploring all sorts of crazy, weird styles and New people and the way that they influenced the instrument that I was playing. And um, when I I walked away from that lesson and I said, "All right, I'm going to learn the first page of this Furny Ho piece." And I did. It was it it wasn't in rhythm or or right or anything like that. But it was kind of I was getting inside of the flow of it. And I listened to a lot of recordings, different recordings of um, players, and I got a sense of how i think in many ways that's kind of how you have to learn that music when you're getting it secondhand, when you're not working with the composer or getting it as a as a sort of you know a world premiere you have to listen in order to get the sense of where the music is going and how to approach every little intricate tuplet and um uh, when you fall down that rabbit hole of these intricate tuplets you know being able to then scale it back when you're playing something like mozart that is all just you know, Alberti bass and um, centering yourself on finding a balance between those two things, which I don't know whether I ever did because I never was able to actually find the beat again after going down the path of music. <laughs> um, I, and I guess that's a testament to why my music is sometimes a little bit sort of out of it. And I tend to say to people when they try and play my music in time, it's just like, no, 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 not in time, not in yeah, time. The gesture, the gesture. It's about the gesture. It's about the vibe, you know, it's just all about the vibe. Yeah. But then bringing that back to what I'm saying about incubation, which is, again, similar to An Intermittent Breath, um, it's very, it sort of takes a long time to bloom out of itself. And um, that came from a lot of time just sitting down during the pandemic. I wouldn't say that piece, again, I wouldn't say that piece is a pandemic piece because I, I personally hate the term pandemic piece. Whenever people ask me, oh, did you write a pandemic piece? I go, no. <laughs> Why no. would I want to write a piece about something so terrible? <laughs> um, but um I guess the maybe the maybe the environment of the pandemic gave me a lot of time to think about what I wanted to do with that piece. Cause it, it travels across a lot of ground, but generally it's very slow and um sort of circulates around a couple of little ideas and uses this weird sort of mensuration stretching of activity mm-hmm. over time, but then there's silences that sort of punctuate that music, which has become a more important part of how I approach form. Um, yeah. As you evolve as a composer, you become a bit more conscious of how structure actually works. Um, when you're young and naive, you kind of just do whatever and hope to God that someone does the right thing in the right place and you're like, yeah, that was right. Yeah. But now I think there's a lot... I'm Becoming way too much of a control freak over what I want. Um, sometimes people tell me I'm way too specific with my scores, but sometimes people tell me that I don't know what that means. Tell me what that means, and I go.
0: Yeah. What well, What do you want from me? Right. Well, yeah. I, and I mean, how do you how do you get too specific? You know, it, it it's you can't you can't get too specific. You know, it's <laughs> it's I think a great actually uh, a uh, a non new avant-garde, whatever, you know, example of this is, uh, the song by Stefano Donauri, um, o Del Mio Amato Ben, right? This thing yeah, is, yeah. it's two, ver- it's two verses, you know, just completely strophic, you know, um, mirror image, uh, four pages and it has every single Italianism ever on that page. It's like, you know, Tondo within you know, Alargando. Like it's just like everything is dictated. Like to nudie, You know, like all over there. There's you're often dice, deciphering uh, three kind of you know instructions at once. And I use it a lot in teaching. Um, you know, with more more advanced students and everything. Because I'm like, this is this teaches you to subdivide. This teaches you, um, you know, like actual legato and rubato. You know, um, and it's telling you it's telling you exactly what to do when in that, Mm -hmm. you know, if you only look at the notes on the page, it will not sound correct quotes. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not going to it's not going to sound how, you know, what the intention is. The intention is like, you know, it's this Neapolitan, like, you know, um, Mm -hmm. uber romanticism. But if you just sing the notes on the page, you're going to you're going to miss all of that. So. I just think there's no such thing, and it's not, you know, having that level of detail in a piece, you know, or, or an extreme level of detail in a piece uh, as a composer. I, I, I actually view that now. I've grown. <laughs> uh, I view that now as as actually a courtesy. You know, um, like this is this is a way for me to know that oh, okay, this composer has an image in mind and has given me every amount of detail possible for me to match that image, you know? um, But then, you know, if, then, if you're rehearsing the piece and they're a jerk, (laughs) it's a different thing, you know? Yeah. I guess it's, it's dealing with the divas in
1: classical music, you know, they're everywhere. They're Um, everywhere. And, and, and and I mean, I can be a bit of a diva at times with it too. And, you know, I I do get a little bit pissed off with performers who purposefully sort of look at the detail in my music as being like this megalomantic, control-freaky thing, which maybe it is. Maybe Freud said it was. But (laughs) I I guess it's more of a question of how do I convey what I want when I can't tell people what I want? Because it's sometimes really hard when you're dealing with, especially when you're dealing with really high-profile performers, telling them that you want something that they're not doing, is hard. And it, mm-hmm. it's a it's a trial by f- um, fire in many ways for young composers. And I've seen it time and time again, whenever I've dealt with programs, and I've sat and watched other people get their music performed, not that I've necessarily done many of them in person, a lot of it's been mm-hmm. online during this time. But, you know, just sort of watching people interact, it's so different. And I've even felt it myself, like there's a, a sort of a barrier between mm-hmm whether or not I can actually communicate that. And I've had to be more specific with the score because sometimes performers will say, okay, so what the hell do you want me to do here? You know, it says Super Bowl mallet dragged along the, the frame of the piano, but what does that actually mean? I have to go, well, it means take the Super Bowl mallet and drag it up the frame of the piano. And they go, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think, but it was there. So this is where notation becomes a really interesting question. How do we convey what we want with notation? How specific are we? How specific do we want to be? You know, it's a, and how important is notation and the malleability of certain notations. Can we use them for multiple purposes? It's like a big example in notation for like going into the avant-garde and going into the 20th century was the use of the diamond notehead you know how has that evolved so much since its first uses as a, a neume in Gregorian chant right through to being used as harmonic notation for strings and then being used as an air notation for winds and voices mm-hmm. and now it's sort of used as like a i don't know just a, a catch
0: all almost
1: yeah just any any random sound can be a diamond head notation and yeah that, i guess that's the you know, that's the benefit of living in the world that we live in. We can do whatever the hell we want. And right, it yeah. Says.
0: Well, it's but, a, it,
1: go ahead. Um, I, I think it's it's an interesting thing for, for me as a composer who hand writes, you know, there is a sort of a superstitious quality to that to me, um, not necessarily in a spiritual sense, and I'm sure you'll have questions about the handwriting as well, um, But um, and I'm happy to take all of those questions. I may not have <laughs> answers, but... We'll take all questions. Um, and, the you know, what, what am I representing every time I handwrite that notation? What am I actually doing? And sometimes yeah. the planning process, this is where I somehow There you go. We got there. Of, we got there. We drag it back. We string it back to my process as a composer is how... What am I actually representing here? What does this mean in regards to a, a musical action? And then coming back to the physical, how is this physically done?
2: Yeah.
1: And this was and this was something I learned really early on from sitting in um, bands and orchestras in front because I was a woodwind player. I always sat in front of the brass.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And one of the things I remember hearing a lot was that they lips were tired and I would just sit there and listen to them complaining constantly my lips are tired I'm so tired and I was I always listened to that but as I heard it more and more I realized that it actually did affect the way they played like as the rehearsal went on they started to play less well there was a a a point in the rehearsal where they reached a peak and then there was a point where they started to trail off Mm -hmm. and it was it was probably my first experience of that physical action and realising what that was. And I can trace it all the way back to, you know, when I first started playing the clarinet as a kid and like playing on the reed for the first time and noticing the resistance behind Mm -hmm. that. Um, When I was trying out a violin, noticing the action, the physical action of playing and the amount of pressure that I was putting on the strings and how the scratchy, awful sound that was coming out was the thing based on the amount of pressure. It wasn't the yeah. fact that I was playing badly. It was the pressure. I mean, I was playing badly too. But, <laughs> you know, there are there's sort of a, it's, it's so weird when you think about it, these things that happen as a kid and how they are so relevant to your practice now. And now yeah. I'm like, I'm adding bro pressure on purpose. And I, I guess mm-hmm. that's kind of what extended techniques are. It's
0: kind of right. everything we were
1: told as kids, don't do that. And now well, it's like, do do that, but within a controlled space.
0: Right, and, and th- what I'm hearing a lot of is, is yeah, this intention and um, and capability and, and, and everything. Like, you know, going back to the notation, um, you know, and maybe you know your handwriting, uh, the, your scores, and everything. It, you know, it's music. I have a lot of discussions with with uh, um, with students, especially kind of more, you know, amateur beginner students, and I always use amateur in, like, the, like, true, like, it's like you're not making money off the thing you're doing. It has nothing to do with skill mm. level, you know? Oh, for um, fun. So, for fun, yeah, exactly. Like, it's, mm. you know, so um, uh, Nita Dante taught me that on an episode that you all should check out if you haven't heard already. Uh, so, <laughs> amateurism's. So some of my my amateur students, you know, especially ones that that come in and say, oh, I I can't read music, you know, and everything. Um, It's really kind of uh, expanded my perception of of music as a language, you know, Um, this thing, because usually what people mean is I can't read music means I I can't look on the page. People's expectation is I can't look at look at the page and go, that is this note name. And here I'm going to, especially with the voice, I'm going to sing it, you know. I can't fucking do that. Like, you know, like I can't, I can't do that. I have like good general pitch, like give me a pitch. I can, you know, I can find your fifth or whatever, you know, but I can't just go in cold. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't have that, that kind of uh, capability. Some other people do, you know, but it, when you start looking at a piece, reading music is not the note names. It's so much more the shape and the intention and the gesture and yes. all of this stuff, all that detail that you put in, you know, pull the the the, the hammer across the um, across the piano. It's like, well, why don't you try it first? You know, like take that, read it and f- see what comes out from that interpretation and then yes. go back and go, well, is this right? Um, you know, and and I could you know. So, yeah, that that's just some thoughts that have been in my head with this whole conversation is, is that um, yeah, that, that dedication to intention in, in, in new music, in the kind of the, the trajectory, the, the current world of music that we're living in right now, you know, in terms of scoring and, and everything. And, um, and with handwritten and, you know, may, maybe, maybe uh, this is the case for you, but I, you know, in my limited experience as a composer and, you know, and I still do this, um, I handwrite as well because it's just that it's. It, I, I think that inputting straight into a program um, is a barrier to what I want to intend. The, my language, basically, mm-hmm. you know. So I, yes. I definitely feel it when you say, "Well, yeah, diamond notehead means this," but every time I write it in a piece, if I'm handwriting it, it's going to be different. You know, if yeah. you're going feverishly because you have 10 ideas and you need to get to that last idea, those diamonds are going to look different, you know, yeah. versus the first one you write where you're like, okay, where is this breeding? Yes. How am I making this real? Um, and, yeah, so, I mean, for me, that's what happens. Is that is So is that similar to your intention with handwriting your scores? Totally, totally
1: the same. I, I'm very much in the same world of, I have this I share the same thing with the um, programs I actually began on Sibelius uh, Mm -hmm. writing music and I remember as I was starting to branch out into more exploratory sort of worlds of notation and all of that and techniques I did notice that there was that barrier that I had to try and constantly sort of you know there are ways of doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things in Mm -hmm. Sibelius and using lines and all of that to be creative but the time it takes for you to do that versus the actual result can sometimes be, it's just not the same as, and like you said, that first diamond note head that you write in a piece could be totally different to the, even the second diamond note head. It's the, I think this is the thing that I've really started to enjoy about the process of handwriting is the idiosyncrasies, the little wonky lines of that single quarter note or that, moment when you're writing a note and then you realise that it's, you know, disproportionately differently placed to that one, you know, the program will make it look beautiful, it will make it look perfect, but it also looks, it looks kind of almost a bit dead, it looks lifeless and sort of unenergetic and people who can bring that sort of notation to life, there are examples of composers who have really sort of their head around the software, but there are also cases where you know composers will handwrite, but then for you know, if they're writing for a large orchestra, it's not often that you're going to get the chance to actually get an orchestra to play a handwritten score, yeah, yeah for sure. All look at you like, What the hell is that? So, um, and they'll be like, What century are you living in? And I mean, they're all living in like the 18th century, but yeah, right, we're apparently, like, not, al- we're we're apparently that- not allowed to live there, you know, <laughs> <laughs> double not standards ever, of orchestra not writing, right? <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, not like any of us really get to write for orchestra anyway and that's my bitness about orchestra music um,
0: <laughs> it's all cha- yeah it's all chamber I, yeah, all I, chamber yeah you know, and, and this maybe gets into opera a little bit you know for, for me because it's you know um mm-hmm. you know i i uh you know i think that you know living in america you know the the emphasis of a lot of a lot of opera is, is on grand scale right the the Mm. grand opera orchestra as well. Right. Um, everybody wants to see, you know, Sibelius and Beethoven and everything. And it's all, it's all really big, you know, and even, you know, dinosaur company comments aside, um, I don't (laughs) think, I, I don't think that's the world we live in right now. We don't live in a grand opera world. We don't live in a grand masterwork world. We live in a chamber world. All of our stories are local, you know uh, well, like, and one way or yes. another.
1: Yes, I, I think that's a really interesting point to make. We we do live in a lot more of a sort of, I guess you could say fragmentary world where there are lots of different worlds that we live in now. It's not just one big world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I would the thing I would say about that is that I'm in two minds about the grand opera thing. First of all, dinosaur companies hundred percent agree with that. <laughs> Second, I would say I think there is a place for these institutions. And I think that they exist for a reason and that they and that they are there to conserve. It's like the fact that we have conservatories versus schools of music. We have yeah. conservatories which um, apply the knowledge of the past and schools of music which look for the knowledge of, they use the knowledge of the past for the future. Whereas the conservatory yeah. uses the knowledge of the past to sort of conserve that idea in the name. And opera, I think, is a, is a really strange one because even when you look at the big-scale operas that are new nowadays, they're usually, like, it's very rare that you'll find a really large-scale opera by a composer. Like, I can think of one particular example would be a composer like Hyatt Turnovan, who's had Mm -hmm. amazingly staged, huge um, productions, like... um, there was that production that she did of um, Infinite Now which was that uh, staging of um, uh, the play Front which was about the war and um, I just remember watching that production, it's about two and a half hours that whole sort of opera and I remember listening to it for the first time and I was just completely enthralled by the fact that she kept the focus For pretty much the entirety of that opera because it's an immense space to deal with and it's something that's really hard with a generation like with it with just the society that doesn't have the attention span to sit through a 45 minute episode of a tv show anymore yeah you know unless we can binge watch something for six hours a day we're not going to watch it you know if i can't watch all seven episodes of that show I'm just gonna wait until it's out on DVD and then I'll buy it. You know why? Right. Why? Why would I sit and watch it with ads when I can watch it without ads? I mean, seriously.
0: Right, um, but then, but people complain about the length of, you know, live entertainment.
1: <laughs> yeah, like what the hell is up with that? Um, but uh, yeah, I and then compl- people complain about the concert hall and intervals, and it's like you know, and I, I think there are ways to make the concert hall better. Um, but I don't think putting beanbags on the floor is the answer, though.
0: Yeah, right. I don't right. think
1: making. I don't think making. I think that there has to be a level of discomfort for something like that. You have to always have a focus. You can't have mm-hmm. things be too comfortable. Because it's like a cinema. You sit in a cinema seat, and yeah, sure, you'll go to those cinemas sometimes where they'll have nicer chairs and they'll have a. Thing where you can press a button and a foot footrest will come up, or you know you'll have a front row seat that's made of cushiony things, or what you know, whatever it is nowadays. We're we're constantly changing it. Thank you, capitalism. But you know, <laughs> there's like a a whole world of potential with that. But generally, you and it's like economy seating on a plane. You're paying up through the nose most of the time. To I mean, yes, I have an example of that most recently. I I just flew 31 hours across the world and I flew economy the entire way so I definitely know what it feels like to be uncomfortable for 31 hours. And we complain about concert halls being an uncomfortable environment and I just go, but it's like one hour in a cushiony sort of comfortable luxurious seat and sit there with your champagne. Yeah, you you know
0: what's uncomfortable? Not the seats. What's uncomfortable is the culture. What's uncomfortable is 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 how yeah. you feel in that space because it's stifling. It's so stifling. Uh, you know. Talk it's to me about
1: that though, tell me what you mean by stifling. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm yeah. just asking. What do you mean by stifling? Now I'm I mean, questions.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Sean's podcast. Uh, so it's uh, uh, this is music. Uh, so. <laughs> I think stifling because, you know, I, I, I've had so many, uh, personal experiences cause I, I, you know, I'll, I'll dress up, you know, and, and everything, you know, sometimes, but, but other times I, I totally won't like, I don't go to the opera to dress up. I go, or the orchestra to dress up. I go to the, I go to there because, you know, I'm interested in, in the art that's, that's being presented. Right. And it's interesting to me enough to pay for a ticket and, and see it. Right. Experience Probably. it. And yeah. I've had, Many instances of vicious side eye from the elite, (laughs) from the seasoned subscribers. And, you know, because I'm not, you know, dressed up or like, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I just, you know, I bump around a lot and everything. You know, I'm just very easygoing, I guess, there. Um, But uh, and I, and I, I get this all this side eye and all this energy coming at me and I'm like, I do this for a living. You know, the person you're like sitting over there and shaking your head at, you know, like I'm going to be doing this next week for money and you're going to pay for it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, yeah. And it's so uncomfortable, but, and, and be, you know, and that, 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 stifling, that expectation of, of what yeah. you're, what you're supposed to be, who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to react you know, is so stifling. And so I think the antithesis of what is, what you're there for.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I I think I would agree with you with that. And and how we break down that culture is an interesting question. How do we actually, we'll we'll not break it down, how do we open it up? Rather Mm. than trying to collapse it and rebuild it? Because I think that's counterproductive. You know, you all you're going to do is just piss off the rich people and you'll get even worse side-eye. Yeah. You know, how do you how do you make it that we do... Have, and how do you not divide people, but how do you make it that, you know... And this is the question of, you know, how do you make the seats more affordable without, mm-hmm. you know, then just making every seat the same price because then there'd just be outrage and it'd be mayhem. You know, oh, it's... Yeah, the world will end if concert halls all have the same ticket price. Um, Wouldn't that be a day? But, um, I mean, there are countries where concert hall tickets are completely free so people can just go in. And it's maybe it's a good idea, maybe it isn't. I don't know. But, I mean, I'm not here to talk about politics because it's one of my least favourite subjects. But, like, it's just, it's one of those things where I look at the institution like opera, and I look at the institution, like, like you say, you walk in and you're wearing, you know, just clothing that you wear, wear any day. It's not your suit and tie. It's nothing fancy. You know, you're not walking in with a ball gown or anything like that. You're just going to see an opera. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you said, you're an opera singer. Like <laughs> You do this for a living. And I, I often like, I, I tend to sort of dress I, I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't make me sound like I'm being too egotistical. Formidable, I guess, is the way that I would describe mm-hmm. myself when I do a little bit severe. Sort of, you know, I always dress in black. It's just a choice, even though I'm wearing red right now. Um, but you know, I, I sort of embedded myself in that demeanor mainly because of the artistic side of my of my practice and the fact that I always associated that sort of attire with artists, but. I don't look down on people because of what they wear in the concert hall. Right. I think if anything, the way people act in the concert hall is more a thing that I would question rather than what they're wearing. Like if they're wearing, you know, barely anything, but then they're sitting there quietly, I don't have an issue. You know, it's not my problem. Like do whatever you want. But if you're sitting there chewing really loudly and toughing and sneezing and clapping between movements, you know, that's my issue. Mm. And
0: right anyway
1: that's yeah. my that's my issue. The, the
0: clap in between movements though the clap in between movements like I, I'm mm-hmm. I'm somebody that like I, I feel compelled to, to make some noise when I when something moves me you know and now with tact right like mm-hmm. you, you know it's like don't 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 be don't I'm not going to be that guy that like you know breaks the magic moment after you know after the after the release of the music you know mm-hmm. I'm not Planning my applause but like (laughs) I want the ability and I don't because I know it's not allowed but I want the ability if somebody you know nails something to go (laughs) you know to just clap or snap or something you know just to go yeah like we are I'm here with you you know I'm here in this moment with you and I think you know
1: it's almost like that thing with jazz when you at a jazz club and a jazz musician does a solo and everyone sort of claps yeah. after they do it and things like that you know but I think that's the thing that differs and maybe that's the thing the thing that I would say about the applauding between movements for me that that is a problem is I think it breaks the focus especially if you're listening to a big symphony that has five movements that goes for you know an hour or something you want to get that full experience and, and that I think it, it comes down also to, to the theatre of a lot of performance which we'll get into with the way I work as well, I'm sure. But, like, the thing that I find with concert halls is when an orchestra finishes a movement, you have this moment where everyone sort of turns the page and you hear this clicking of music stands and turning of, and and then the audience joins in with that. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's almost this thing where I, I sort of sit there and I'm almost squirming on the inside going, oh, you know, that sound, it's sort of this break of focus. And it happened, um, I was at the Sydney Opera House um, pre-pandemic uh, watching a show and I was just sitting there and after one of the movements, this really beautiful soft movement of the Tarangalila Symphony and it ended with this sort of beautiful end of the piano sort of bird song. and then suddenly everyone just started squirming before the movement had even ended. And I was going, what are you doing? You know, the... The piece is still going we're not finished here and I guess it's the thing that comes down to the focus on stage is the thing that I, I always am intent on and I guess you get it better in a chamber setting because people are it's a very intense setting often in the round and things like that so you have that focus but with a concert hall there is that you are dealing with a very large spectrum of people no matter what you're dealing with even if you're dealing with entirely aristocratic people you're dealing with 5,000 aristocrats there are still 5,000 people
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's a it's a really it's a really hard thing how do we cater for 5,000 seats filled with 5,000 different people from yeah. 5,000 different places you know how do we know who's coming to these concerts and it can be tricky. You
0: know how yeah. do how do we cater for everyone yeah it, it can i mean that's <laughs> yeah i mean five five thousand people it's not an answer any, it's not an it, answer Yeah, <laughs> is there one you know but five thousand people in any context to me is way too many people <laughs> it's too many people any context yeah, yeah. um so yeah, I'm, I'm going to put on, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, cue up just this, uh, we we're talking about infinite now and, and I'm going to, just going to queue up a little, uh, since we're talking about opera and everything, you this up and then, mm-hmm. um, and then after that, let's, uh, um, let's talk about your, your song choices a bit.
1: Yeah, in that in that is that it's like a it's it's very vulnerable writing a lot of her music. And I I really do think she's very inspiring in regards to, I think the thing that I often think about with her music is this sort of abandon for for the need of order. But everything is very precise in her music, very um hyper sort of notated and very specific and very timbrally aware. But there are also elements where it's like she sort of becomes more open, and that's and that's evolved, I think, a lot more over the years. Um, maybe I don't know. But uh, one thing that certainly has uh, uh, changed for me in listening to Infinite
0: Now,
2: than yes. anything, was that yes. uh, I
1: realized
2: um, that no matter yeah, what so, I do, so my opera let's will go be to fine if, uh, one day. Uh, <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, just you know, give people a little bit of soundtrack of of the music that made you. Um, so yeah, so we, we, we open up. I, I'm kind of assuming these these are uh, uh, in uh, order here, but um, <laughs> some messian first. So so was this kind of something early on in your ears?
1: Yeah, so I was about seventeen, and um, there was a, the Australian World Orchestra was actually playing the Turangalila Symphony in Melbourne, um, and I was kind of getting into Messiaen at the time, had been introduced to his piano music quite extensively and started digging into him. But I didn't really know a lot of his orchestral music. Um, and then I saw this was being played and I'm like, oh my God, we have to go. So I, I dragged my parents along who actually ended up really liking it. I don't know why, but um, well, actually I do, I do know why they have explained to me, but you know, it's the magic of this type of music is that people are often kind of tentative towards it but it actually ends up being okay and it's kind of like the rite of spring Mm -hmm. you know people are often alienated by that piece but it's it's actually a classic and it's it's actually very easy listening compared to a lot of stuff
0: Uh, we we, well music will music will never hurt you (laughs) it will never hurt you right how you listen to the music might I mean you know but like music itself will never hurt you and that's no. that's for some reason people are worried about that like it's dangerous
2: yeah
0: you know to stretch things out so what did this do what 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 did this do 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 for you how did this kind of uh continue permeating
1: uh it i guess the it set me on a path of looking down that more coloristic sort of path because Messiaen's music is highly mm-hmm. sort of um, coloristic even in its rhythmic choices it's very specific in relation to its sort of juxtapositions and placements and mm-hmm. little thematic materials little light motifs and things like that that appear throughout his music especially in the Tarugula the Symphony there's very famous examples of um, some themes in there but it it struck me Early on as being a way of orchestrating for such a huge orchestra. You know, he varies from extraordinary polyphony right into these sort of huge unison moments that are just so powerful towards the end. But um, in particular, this fifth movement that I um that I sent, it's this sort of very showy, almost I almost imagine it like the sort of the American movement of the symphony, because um, it was actually originally commissioned by the Boston Symphony Orchestra and um, conducted by Leonard Bernstein, funnily enough. Oh, cool. And um, a nice little bit of trivia. But uh, this recording in particular captures that really fast paced energy of the movement. It's in 316. So it's like just non stop in one direction. It's like a, you get on the roller coaster and you're gone. You're like there's no stopping.
0: Talk about your textures there. That, that's, it just kind of keeps on like the little percussion that kind come, comes in and then the, the, piano, it just, the, the material, yeah, yeah. material keeps on repeating, but the texture is ever changing and, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's this extraordinary sort of layering system that he had, almost an accumulative sort of structure that grew and grew and grew and the activity becomes more and more urgent as you're listening mm-hmm. and, yeah, it's really extraordinary writing. Um, and so and in, and the and coming back to that physicality thing, watching the music being performed live was probably the most uh, sort of immersive experience and seeing the virtuosity behind the pianist because I think the positioning of our seats, we were right behind the pianist and we could see the whole orchestra um, cool. and there's just this you know, very hyperactive use and virtuosity behind the keys and gives you a very good sense of the activity required right. um which is always great
0: yeah um then we have uh oh yeah well, I, I don't know how to say, say the name of, of, of that uh of the messian piece turan galila the turan <laughs> galila symphony movement five you like that so next is voodoo child by uh Liza Lim, Liza Lim, Liza Lim. Um, yeah. So we're, we're eh, let's let's shake it up. Let's let's listen first, and then you can. Is any good space not to, to, to stop that? There's uh eight more minutes of uh, it. Uh, that's so okay. So I'm gonna is this something that like got your ears weird? Like, is this this like uh one of those entry pieces that got got your ears weird? This Definitely. Uh, this makes this makes sense. This this has uh um I can I can see the impact in your music. You yes,
1: know, yeah. Yeah, she's at Lethal Lim, um, Australian composer, is just one of my massive idols. She's just one of the most amazing voices in contemporary classical music. And that that sense of, um, even from the beginning of that piece, when I first listened, I was just completely baffled by the use of the ensemble and the way that they performed. I mean, it's the Illusion Ensemble, Australian sort of contemporary ensemble uh, you yeah. are renowned for their um, crazy um, work with a variety of different composers, anyone from, you know, crazy worlds of Richard Barrett, who I'm sure we'll get to next, and you yep. know, going back to Lisa's music, like, you know, um, this piece is, a, is quite an early piece. I think it might be the second piece ever that was published of hers, and um, it's the setting of a Sappho poem that uh, was has been sort of separated out into the voice and you could even hear it like the the timbral uh malleability of the voice is really deconstructed down throughout the use of this greek poetic fragment and i don't know if you know that sappho's poetry a lot of it was actually burned in the fire Mm. in the alexandria library and um so uh they actually recovered a number of fragments, and what remains is sort of what we have of her writing. And um, I don't, I don't actually remember specifically what the text is for Voodoo Child, but um, it's not, it's not about a Voodoo Child. The Voodoo Child, I think, more comes from the uh, the tambour world that she was dealing with. But even just the interaction between the instruments, to me, was the thing that really drew me to this music, mm-hmm. and and made me think about the. sort of passionate and fluid way in which they interacted and also the way that they just moved between these different techniques you know the harmonics and the sort of distorted sounds of the wind instruments and the trombone was a real Mm -hmm. sort of like something that I um I was never really that fond of brass instruments growing up I kind of mentioned that um thing of sitting in front of them a lot um they're very loud and um
0: (laughs) it'll put a chip on your shoulder
1: It really, yeah, it really puts a chip on your shoulder in more ways than one. And it means that you're kind of left with this sort of bad taste. But I I always thought of brass as being a little bit one-dimensional, but the more I've sort of gotten to know this type of music, the more I've realised that every instrument has so many potential outcomes. And the, like, you can even see in the notation, it's just this wild world of sort of overtone harmonics and um using the mute as this sort of almost like megaphone like device of going in and out of um being in action and it's just insane to me and i i I completely fell in love with her notational style as well which is i I would say somewhat reminiscent of my own and i i own that i i'll own the fact that that's the case and i know that people have have come after me about that before and i you know, I think it's now I take it more as a compliment and there are things that are similar but there are also things that are starting to differ which is good and I'm glad to time.
0: surprised. that was an accident. No, yeah, I, I was I was going to say I was I was trying to point at the at the screen and then I clicked but yeah, I mean there's just there's, I mean I'm, I'm looking there's like all all these you know kind of things like just notes of like not synchronized, you know, like these little. So, I mean, that this is a, a kind of a hyper dictated score, um, you know, Can it's like, how do you expect to do something like this with a clean slate, you know, with just mm-hmm. ink on the page? How does you can, I, I don't think you can. I think that would be impossible to have that high quality of an interpretation of a piece this like this. Um, Well, it it
1: comes down to very, she has a very close collaborative relationship with the musicians that she works with and they are, you know, there's like a very intense process that they go through. Like she's known these musicians for like 30 odd years. So it's, you know, a very intimate sort of experience performing that music and um, similar in the next piece that we're going to hear. Yeah.
0: um, Yeah. Yeah, And that's Um, a good transition. Richard, Richard Barrett. uh, It's somebody I I am familiar with. Um, uh, but uh, Cassandra from Construction is the, um, is the track here. So, yeah, so um, where does this fit in for you? Uh,
1: in a similar way to Voodoo Child, I came across it quite, um, quite closely in proximity to Voodoo Child, actually. Um, as I was exploring more of the work of the Illusion Ensemble and the composers associated, after seeing a concert, they did a double feature but they performed a whole bunch of new work by young composers plus a work by Lisa. Um, I think they were all sort of solo and chamber works. And then there was a, the second half of the concert was a Richard Barrett portrait, um, which was a great introduction to the Elision ensemble, um, yeah. for 19 year old me. And, um, I was sitting in front of one of the big speakers, um, for the final piece of the concert, which was a piece for trombone and electronics and, um, uh, trombone and eight channel electronics no less and it's sort of the trombonist moves around the room Ben Marks insanely good trombonist um but uh he was after this concert and experiencing that music I really started to get into I mean while I wouldn't necessarily 100% subscribe to Richard Barrett's music um all the time I do find that construction and in particular this movement captures that world of I guess you would say, a sort of an extraordinarily um, elaborate tapestry of sound that is constantly unfolding and evolving but always moving Mm -hmm. and and it's almost writhing. And even in Voodoo Child, that was the other thing that I really found was this sort of very physical, visceral um, action that I felt as the music was sort of going into my ears. I felt it sort of channelling through my body. Um, and it was like an it was an experience that I had never really had when I listened to I mean you you get the um, spine tingling feeling in big moments in Mahler symphonies and you know in the pine at the end of the pines of Rome and big pieces like that and big operas when you have a big climax there's always that moment where you just feel it like a very um, physical experience but with this type of music I'd never really had that experience and that was when I really sort of went that's what I want to do you know that's the music I want to write and there's a place to put this. It's not like I'm sort of thinking about something completely out there and radical. It is actually being done. So I, I, I felt like there was sort of a people that I could look towards and in many ways have continued to look towards.
0: Awesome. Well, let's, let's take a listen to Cassandra from uh, by, by Richard Barrett. Chaotic, but I I already feel this. I'm gonna. Um, I mean, listen, listen to it. you uh, um, sent, but but with this idea, of my that that time I, I started feeling like that internal like that that build up like the the, the chaos is obviously leading to something. You know, there's no mm. space in between the sound. You mm. know, um, or in between the texture is maybe what what it is that is mm. unrelenting. Um, yes, and like I know that it's going to go somewhere. That something's going to happen with a voodoo child. You know, there's a little bit more space in the texture, just right off the bat, and everything. It's it's you know your your ear is kind of able to mm. shift here, there, there. This your your yes. head is yeah. just in one place. There's definitely an element of... Until the composer of, um, decides you're not I, I anymore. I think the
1: unrelenting is you the know. best way that I can think to that yeah. you describe this, is that this piece is just kind of, from the beginning, it's just full steam ahead. There's no stopping. And... I think it's funny. I've always been fond of fast music, but I've never liked writing fast music, if that makes sense. Um, I've always liked music that's a little bit more reserved and my, under my own hand because I think there's a lot more space that I can work within that. And that's why I, I think with Voodoo Child, you know, there is a, a there are things that you can kind of focus on. There are sounds that emerge when she wants them to unmerge, whereas, and that is the case with the Barrett, but it happens a lot quicker. You know, sounds will go past and it just... You're like it's like you're on a train, this and the train's not stopping at any station. It's like an express train. It's just going. Yeah. Whereas Voodoo Child, you sort of you sort of slow down and you pass by that little part. It's almost like being in a gallery on a train. Mm. You're going past and you see a little bit, uh, or it's like a tour bus of some kind. You go past a station or you go past a monument and they say this is the Eiffel Tower. And and like, oh, this, oh, this, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, then it put yeah it in, it's and it's like, but then and then you move on. But then yeah. it's like. And, and, it, and you sort of circle back around, and you see it in the back, and um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. as I said, Th- this, not is, 100%, this is,
0: yeah, yeah, I, this, not this is much more like,
1: go <laughs> ahead, Zoom, <laughs> yes, love Zoom, um, the chaos of conversation, but I, I tend to be a little bit sort of wary around Richard's music because of that sort of chaotic, unrelenting nature to it. It can sometimes be a bit much to sort of deal with. But I think in this cha- in this chamber piece, I mean, this is part of a much larger sort of structure, which I will actually get into with the next piece as well. But this is part, it's a sort of a section inside of a much larger structure, which was a really interesting thing for me to look at as a composer in regards to writing big works for a large ensemble of, I think this whole work is for three voices and a large ensemble of about 20 players, each of which play a multiplicity of auxiliary instruments. Um, I think the string players are the only ones who aren't playing something that isn't their own instrument. Um, So, you know, there's a, a real sense of, there are lots of little moments inside of these pieces, little modular sort of structures that sit inside yeah. of it and um, they create the the overall tableau, which is the case for um, it's almost like a Baroque sort of technique of um, yeah. very early opera, Monteverdi opera. You know, you had um, a sort of a huge ensemble of 16 organs and all these lutes and things, but then like they'd all only be used for very select moments and then there would be movements. It's like a movement of a requiem or something from that period mm-hmm. or cantatas. It, I, I could go, I could list it on and on and oh, on. Yeah. But they're there's like You, this you, you mean examples. this
0: music connects to, to history?
1: Oh my god, what? What Experimental music no. isn't like completely and utterly reversed and like hating on the whole world? It's just, it's just beep, boop, beep.
0: It's, that's, the, that's what I thought. let just beep, boop, beep.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like what? where the hell did all of this historical sort of formatting
0: right? come from?
1: Yeah, but um, I mean, a lot of this music is actually sort of embedded in that in that historical framework. And a lot of composers of this style, like even Feniho is very into that very early music idea. A lot of his more recent stuff is based on early music tunes and things like that. And it happens. Like we are inspired as composers by lots of things. And if someone asks me, what are you inspired by, which I'm sure may have been on your mind. Um, Again, wonderful question to uh, ask, terrible question to answer. Uh, and I think the thing that I would say is that we can be inspired, we can be inspired by anything and you know it's to me when someone asks me what inspires a particular piece that's usually the better way of looking at it than saying well this piece was inspired by this book or this poem or this picture or this idea that I or this vision that I had one day you know Um, but what inspires many people can be many many things and one of those things can be the historical parts of music and in many ways a lot of complexist music is inspired by forms from ancient music because a lot of that was quite complex you look at renaissance and um oh i can't remember the name of it um the stuff that happened before the renaissance
0: um oh medieval music and everything yeah medieval and mannerism that stuff
1: sort of very uh in, uh, improvisatory and uh, highly sort of filigraic
2: yeah. activity.
1: It's very, very gnarly sort of stuff It's awesome, awesome to listen to and awesome to play.
0: Um, yeah, it's, it's yeah. A, it all connects. So so this last piece, um, Yes, by Rebecca Saunders, um, we're going to roll this in to um, the question I ask at the end of every um, uh, yeah, episode. And so oh, let you, uh, we're going to uh, double whammy it. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, is that I always ask for a new music icon impression, which is either, you know, anything from, you know, a, you know, like, Oh yeah, I can do uh, uh, Rebecca Saunders voice perfectly. I don't know if you have a good inv- Rebecca Saunders impression, um, to like a story, you know, that sits with you, you know, this encourages people to look up things, use their own Google abilities, um so yeah so you know rebecca saunders has come up twice now you know mentioned her piece of flesh earlier um which has a great mm-hmm. impact has had a great impact on you and now she's showing up on this um on, on your Ooh. on your curated list so uh,
1: a great what impact impa- what impression has rebecca saunders one, made on I've you? i've only known her music for just over a year which is, I guess, coming back to that thing that you said about um, things happening very quickly during a three-year period, but a lot has happened in the past three years. But mm-hmm. uh, I came across her music and a New Zealand colleague of mine introduced um, her music to me. And uh, there was a piece that she wrote a little bit earlier than Yes called Skin, which was for Voice and Large Ensemble, which um, the, a lot of the material, coming back to that idea of the sort of accumulative structure a lot of that material from Skin actually was sort of uh, fleshed out and bloomed when it, um, not to make the pun with Molly Bloom necessarily, uh-huh. but um, uh, sort of grew out and effloresced or exploded outwards in, um, yes, which was a, a huge sort of spatial collage piece that goes for about 80 minutes and, um, uh it varies. Um, She talks about the fact that there are countless sort of solo chamber pieces that are all, rather than being strung together in a sort of chronological order, like in the Richard Barrett piece, um, Construction, Mm -hmm. it's kind of, they're kind of superimposed as as a sort of a huge collagic wall of activity. And what you end up with is a completely new experience. And she uses like The thing that really grabbed me was and the thing that you mentioned a bit earlier about my work was the idea of spatiality and the importance that a space takes in um, uh, plays in being a part of a work. And that is very much becoming a part of my practices, the acoustic and psychoacoustic experience of musicians and how music uh, changes the way we feel about certain spaces and how pieces like Yes, can in fact be impactful in ways psychologically, and uh, I mean that's a, that's a totally different conversation from what you asked me. But I would say Perfect. Rebecca Saunders really, she, she, one of her sort of philosophies as a composer is find your sounds, you know, and mm-hmm. she has a very specific, uh, distinct palette. I won't say specific. She has a very distinct palette of sounds that she tends to sort of gravitate around and she she dips out of them and it's always nice to sort of hear little bits of information from different places but when you are brought back to those sounds that are part of her vocabulary as a composer it's always very sort of it's almost this familiarity thing and it's something that I've started to adopt in my own practice is finding sounds from other pieces that I've written and saying okay what can I do with that sound how can I incorporate that into a new piece and how can I bring this sound into a new space? What what mm-hmm. are the contexts? What are the conversations that I can have with other instruments? And how no. And bringing back that idea that I'm coming full circle from what I said at the opening about um, my interest in sounds diverging and converging. How can these sounds diverge from their original place? How can they be strung out in new ways? Which is very much, I think, where Rebecca's music has gone. Um, and I... I I think she would probably be the most recent influence on my music. Cool. Um, cool. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, we'll uh, we'll let yes kind of take us out for this episode. I want to thank you. It's been a fantastic conversation. Um, and uh, obviously, we have so much more to talk about. And I look forward <laughs> to doing that. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for spending some time chatting. Um, In a pleasure good Uh, so this is Yes by Rebecca Saunders listen to listen to a bit of that take us out